Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Beasts of the Southern Wild. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always uh, by my comrade Julio. Uh, how are you doing on this Wednesday evening as we buckle in for this Academy Award nominee? Um, kind of relieved, you know. I, I I had it in my head that it was going to be a much rougher movie to watch, and I was dreading it. And then I, as as I was going through it, I'm like, man, this. Maybe the first time I watched it, I was just in a really bad place or something because this is actually kind of life affirming. Uh, just this the story of this kid kind of uh, coming of age, and uh, I gotta tell you, man, I Idris Elba just I don't know, not just renewed respect but increased respect. He was unrecognizable in this movie as as you know the the kid's father. Uh, so I, I I'm I'm riding the Beast of the Southern Wild high. As if she couldn't pick us up enough with Annie, Kavanjane Wallace returns here uh, for yet another ride on the Contrarians. So, Julio, we are continuing on with uh, our patrons. Uh, is it the GAD tier that gets you a request for a, an in-canon episode? Well, it does, but actually it's the Embrace tier that gives you that. The GAD gives you that, and it gets you a movie in the in the exclusive Patreon feed. So if you're if you're in the GAT tier, you double dip. So the reason I bring that up is that this was a patron-requested episode. Uh, the Beast of Southern Wild officially enters Contrarian's canon here, uh, as it was requested by Dan Brennick, I believe. Is that correct? That is correct. Dan Brennick. Just, uh, I, I don't know, he, he threw us quite the curveball with his requests, curveballs with his requests uh, this month. Yeah, I guess he just had a real nostalgia for the 2012 award season and He's taking us back to those times. So if this is your first time listening to the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong, as we like to say, we appreciate you joining us here. Uh, this is a podcast, specifically the first portion laden in sarcasm. So, uh, if that's your cup of tea, buckle up. What we like to do here on the contrarians is rage against the rotten tomatoes machine. As we say, that's kind of our battle cry, uh, an appropriate term for this episode. We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, uh, sometimes known as certified fresh, and make a case for maybe why it should be taken down a, a few pegs. Uh, on the other side of that coin, we find uh, one of those nasty green splotches. We typically shoot about 30% and below those rotten movies and make a case for their positive merit. Uh, being that Beast of Southern Wild is at 92% here on Rotten Tomatoes, I think we're going to work uh, to take it down a peg. 
so uh, the Kavanjane Wallace vehicle, Beast of Southern Wild, was released on. It premiered at Sundance on January twenty. Wait, 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 Alex, Alex, Han. Uh, okay, so I, I just, I think I misread. I'm, I'm checking Dan's message from earlier. I think we got the wrong movie. So, uh, hang on, pause. Let's let's regroup. Beastly, starring Vanessa Hudgens, was released on March fourth of twenty eleven. Beast of Burden, starring Daniel Radcliffe, was released on February 23rd of 2018. Linda Hamilton's Beauty and the Beast premiered on CBS on September 25th, 1987. All right, Julio, I think we got it right this time. Uh, Beast of No Nation, uh, looks like, is what we're covering here today. And uh, according to my, my intel here, it was released worldwide on October 16th, 2015. I think for the modern generation, its biggest um, little trivia factor asterisk is that this was the first, the Netflix movie, the uh, movie that Netflix spent a shit ton of money. Uh, we'll get into the the actual dollars and cents of that in the second half of this podcast. Uh, but yeah, that's immediately when I heard that name, that's where I knew it from. And oh boy, it is so much more than just that. It's, it's part of Netflix history and then some. I'm sure this is this is a movie that Idris Elba. I don't know. He must have kept his his rifle from the movie or something. It's you know I think it's one of those uh, watermarks in his filmography that he can't forget no matter how hard he tries. Not unlike Prometheus. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But this is the one that cost him the the role of James Bond. Okay. They were That's... about to like he was about to sign the contract. They're like, wait a second, aren't you the commandant? Hold on a minute. <laughs> yeah. So. Sir Commandante, and just like (laughs) saluted him. (laughs) All right, so have a little fun there to kick it off. We did a bit. Um, We we don't usually do bits in the contrarians, but my God, we needed one to to start this episode. (laughs) There's going to be a few people that are going to be very confused, like some of our longtime listeners, and Dan's going to be like, what the fuck? I was very specific (laughs) about my instructions on this. So... As I was kind of going over our gimmick here on the Contrarians, what we like to do is in the first portion of the podcast, what we call Contrarians Corner, uh, do a kind of sarcastic, facetious, little playful recap of the movies that we cover. We get to how we really feel about the movies in the second half of our podcast, what we call Real Talk. Now, uh, Beasts of No Nation is a, a very serious movie, tip- more serious than we typically cover here on the Contrarians. Uh, not That's not to say that we haven't covered some we, I mean, if you look at our our history of episodes and what we've done, we've done a full gamut of emotions, types of movies, covered a lot of areas of uh, controversy and intrigue. I mean, we did, um, but duplex. obviously, we did we did duplex from Saturday Night Fever to Ready to Rumble. We covered it all. <laughs> but this, uh, if you've seen Beasts of No Nation, you know the the seriousness that comes along with it. I think Dan was. I don't think I know part of him was just trying to see if he could break our system here and see if we could actually do this movie with for the podcast. So, Julio, we say all that. We give this disclaimer that we don't typically give. By this point, we would already been launched into your quotes. But that disclaimer is to say there's going to be certain portions of this movie that we don't even talk about in either half. Um, and I think we're both going to try pretty hard not to make light of the subject matter, but we just kind of wanted to put a disclaimer out there. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And uh, uh, I mean, we we had this this brief talk right before recording about how to how to handle it because usually our recaps are pretty thorough, and I can imagine somebody who's familiar with the movie listening to this episode and kind of dreading 
finding out how we're going to handle some of the more uh, brutal scenes and uh, just kind of like to put all of you at ease. Don't worry, we're not even going to try. You know, we're going to do a, a, a good recap of the movie, but we're not going to, you know, just try to even be funny about the really grisly stuff that happens because that'll be a, a losing proposition. So sit back, relax. Uh, if at some point we end up making a joke that's off color, don't worry, it's going to get cut before the episode <laughs> is released. Excellent. So with all that being said, I did make sure to keep the actual correct uh, Rotten Tomatoes score for this when we were joking about Beast of Southern I Wild. Noticed. This is 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, overwhelmingly positive reviews. Idris Elba got nominated for a Golden Globe. Uh, apparently, he didn't care that much because he didn't win it. You can buy one of those pretty easily. Uh, <laughs> if he wanted it, he could have bought it. So, Julio, we will get to a little bit more of that in the second half and some of the controversy surrounding the distribution and cre- um, production of this movie. But for now, let's just get to the the meat and potatoes here. 92% critical success. What were the critics saying about it? All right. I got four quotes, fresh quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website, starting with Vice Victus from Birth Movies Death, who says, Beasts of No Nation is high caliber cinema. And I'm thinking, it's not cinema. It's Netflix. Uh, yeah, I was about to say, Marty <laughs> Scorsese would, well, I don't know about that right now, okay? <laughs> Especially back then. I mean, I think that... He would have called this movie an amusement park like he called the Marvel <laughs> movies. I I can't even attempt to do a Scorsese impersonation, but yeah, I, he would have been just like, oh, you know, it was cute, but it's not cinema. Um, Donald J. Levitt from Real Talk Movie Reviews says, The lack of moralizing or posturing in this adaptation makes it all the more forceful. And I think there's plenty of posturing coming from Idris Elba, his entire character. Mm-hmm. This is about yeah. posture. Bad posture. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he hunches. Uh, Joanna Connors from the Cleveland Plain Dealer says, So here's what I need to say about Beasts of No Nation. It is a powerful and necessary work of art that I would hesitate to tell anyone to see. So she's saying it's a good movie that she wouldn't recommend to anyone. What? That is definitely one of those uh, philosophies that I have, as I've aged, I've realized is just silly because that's exactly like you're saying. You can't be like, oh, man, it's a great movie. Never see it. You can. <laughs> I'm looking point, out for you. Yeah. At that point, you have to understand your audience. Like, I don't know. There's a lot of movies I like that I know my sister or my dad wouldn't like. Like where we uh, watched uh, Under the Silver Lake, I was watching that movie. I'm like, this is awesome. My parents would hate this. So I'm not going to tell them like, oh, this movie's great. You would hate it. It would just be like, it's not for you. Right. Uh, so uh, who, whose review was this from Cleveland? A Mistake by the Malik? That was Joanna Connors from Cleveland Plain Dealer. Joanna just doesn't know her audience. It's a lot of Croatian immigrants. They're not going to like it. <laughs> Uh, And finally, let's close with Travis Hobson from Examiner.com, who says, While the Academy voters may be hesitant to honor a film that can be streamed from your couch, Beasts of No Nation (laughs) is simply too good to deny. How many years before Roma was this? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. Well, it was 2015. It was a new age. Uh, Imagine... I think that was the whole idea at the time, too. Look look at this one-off movie. They're not just going to solely release big movies on streaming services. (laughs) Look at Netflix trying to play with the big boys. Somewhere in the surrounding jungles of China, there was one bat that said, oh, we'll see about that five (laughs) years from now. (laughs) So, Julio, 
you got a shot at pronouncing the director's name here, Corey Joji Fukunaga. I think it's Fukunaga. Yeah, we're gonna call him Carrie. <laughs> As Carrie he F. was uh, Carrie F. He was the writer, director, producer of this film. Uh, his previous entries of note being um, Sin Nombre. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. I remember that kind of got some buzz when it came out. And he wrote it, the 2017 movie. Uh, he, I, what I know him from is the uh, the first season of True Detective. He wrote and directed all eight episodes, I think. And... Oh, uh, the lead in this movie is Abraham uh, Atta. Atta, uh, I apologize, Abe, if I mispronounce your last name. There, he plays Agu, and according to his filmography, he was in Spider Man Homecoming. I don't seem to have any recollection of him in that movie, though. Really? Hmm. Abe Brown was the character's name. All right, so Julio, we launch into Beasts of No Nation. and uh, Like I mentioned, Agu is a, a young boy living in an unspecified West African country where in which there's basically they're on the brink of civil war. How quickly into this movie did you realize we were in for some torturous award bait stuff? It took a while because it is misleading. I, and I don't know how much you had read ahead of time. But in my mind, you know, I just went in almost completely. What I knew is what we've just told the listeners. It's Netflix's first uh, big movie, and uh, Idris Elba is in it. That's all I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, the name is a little ominous, but that could go a million different ways. So when it starts, it feels like a Disney movie, right? The opening credits are all colorful, and it's a bunch of kids, you know, running around, being mischievous. Uh I would say it wasn't until Idris Elba showed up, and you know, which might be like what twenty minutes into the movie, where I felt, oh, okay, so it's it's a Netflix awards grab. Uh, did you did you get that feeling earlier? Oh yeah, right away from the beginning when they're walking around with the the TV box. Obviously, the <laughs> the monitor has been removed, and it's like this really kind of cute and fun scene of them trying to sell the box that the TV's in, and. They're calling it imagination TV and they're like acting out things. And this old guy, my notes, just like kids having fun is not allowed in this movie. Boy, that was a prophetic note to start (laughs) off with. And yeah, right away, I was just like, oh, man, this guy's being mean to them for being funny. This this isn't we're not off to a good start here. It takes forever. That guy's not all there, though, because it takes him forever to kind of realize that it's not a real TV. (laughs) Figure out what's going on. He's watching for a while. This isn't real. <laughs> These kids aren't real. We get some pretty standard toilet humor early on, too. To I think, if anything, the way I took it was it's to paint sympathy for the mother of the family, just surrounded by stinky men farting at the dinner table. Yeah. Which, uh, this ties into the, the TV, though, because this, it's this kind of fun, lighthearted scene that I was like, okay, we can roll with this. But that's when the dad realizes that the, the kid took the tube out of his TV and it quickly turns from like toilet humor to child abuse. And I was like, God damn it. Can't even have just a good fart joke. This this is where you mistakenly thought that uh, the beast in the movie was the father who couldn't control his temper. So maybe you can help me out here with the early going of the movie. The The kids are in their town here. They're just trying to make a buck any way they can. They, you know, they're not quite stealing or scamming or anything like that. But, you know, setting up like these um, purported issues in the city, like the big... Uh, branch uh, the limb that they cut off the tree and put in the middle of the road and they like tell people that are driving down the road hey we'll pull it off if you pay us that type of thing and then uh, 
a local crazy woman wanders in and I kind of missed what was going on with this. I was hoping you could explain it to me. This woman accuses all of them of stealing her land away. Is this kind of a remnant of the, the civil war in the area? Uh, kind of, because the dad explains it later, I think, in the in the dinner scene where because they I think they mention it to him and he's like, yeah, the woman. What the dad says is that the land belonged to them, to the family. They're using that land to, I guess, have room for all the refugees that they're they're housing. And in order to do that, they kind of had to like kick the woman off, but they didn't kick her off. They told her that she could live with all the refugees if she wanted. And she didn't like that. So yeah. uh, it's. I, I don't blame you for missing it because the first, I would say, you know, 15 minutes of the movie are so, so much like a kid's movie. I mean, you're right. You know, they're, they're farting, they're burping. At one point, uh, a goo uh, pees on his brother while he's taking a shower. Uh, That's right. It's all, you know, very funny. It's all from his point of view. It's a, and kind of like in the background, he, he has a voiceover. Where he's just talking about the civil war and the refugees and whatever. So, a normal movie, like a movie, a proper movie, a movie that's made <laughs> with its audience in mind and knowing what, what it's trying to do, it would actually make more of a point of explaining what the geopolitical situation is in this in this town, in this village. Because, you know, knowing where the movie's going to go, that's kind of important. But instead, they and kind shit of... shit escalates quickly. And, like, the whole political landscape of Western Africa and... Uh, is and was very complicated. Right. It's not like, what, what was the movie with Roberto Benigni that he won the Oscar for? Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. No, that's not it. Life is Beautiful. Life is Beautiful. Yeah, I was about to say, It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> Roberto Benigni didn't say, hey, Clarence, way to go. Uh, so, It's a Beautiful Life, would you call it? It's a Beautiful Life. It's not what you, what do you call it? That fucking movie. Anyway, that, that's like about World War II and concentration camps. That's a pretty well-known story that they don't really need to outline. Right. This movie could have stood to at least explain exactly the heightened political climate and what was going on. You know, uh, Invictus was like advertised as a sports movie. I remember when that came out and it's pretty much a political thriller with Matt Damon playing rugby kind of interspersed in. I, I could have done with a little bit more explanation of why exactly the political tensions are uh, on the on the rise. Right. I think that you can get away with, with having that stuff just as, as background, as color, if your story is, is just going to remain the kind of story that you were telling at the beginning of the movie. If it's just going to be about this kid kind of having adventures while the adult stuff kind of happens in the background, then that's fine. I, I even understand it because, you know, you're the kid. So you, you're you with the kid. You don't need to know what, what the grown-ups are doing. But but this movie requires you to understand what's going on. <laughs> Otherwise, it just it just looks like a whole bunch of, like, uh, uh, people shooting each other, <laughs> doing horrible things to each other for, for no reason. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that was, that's the first moment, the, the first aspect in which the movie drops the ball is it just doesn't provide you enough context to understand what's going to happen. Yeah, the opening here could have led you to believe you were in the the realm of, of another slumdog or potentially a, a movie of that ilk. But not to be one day uh, Agu wakes up and basically shit has just hit the fan in their small town. Uh, they've gathered. I, I don't know if it was the church they gathered at, but the whole village is there. So the they live in a buffer zone enforced by Ecomog. Uh, in West Africa, as I mentioned, and they're informed that um, one of the local governments has been overthrown. Uh, they're basically a group of rebels has overtaken it. So the government's sending in troops to basically get shit back under control. Uh, 
Agu's dad is going to stay behind with his older brother to kind of look after the land and the city, uh, which is obviously very noble. He ends up paying a cab driver to get his wife and his baby, and he's trying to get Agu out of town too. Uh, unfortunately, there's no room, and so Agu does not have a good day. He's first separated from his mom, and he chases after the cab that she's in. Uh, they are then back in town, rounded up, and uh, not even put into an internment camp or anything like that. They're just all lined up on their knees. And this is why I asked about that crazy woman is because this, for whatever reason, like the most twisted Disney character ever coming back to resurface, like uh, fucking Jafar and um, Aladdin, you know, disguised. That was Jafar who disguised himself as like the local beggar, right? Right. So yeah. you think Jafar was in Africa? <laughs> I don't think that. I'm trying to say this is like the most fucked up version of that story. (laughs) This is the most fucked up way this could pay off that character because she shows up and they're like, you're a local. Do you know these people? And she, of course, says no because she has this huge uh, resentment towards them. And sadly, they uh, gun them all down right there in a line as uh, Goose's father tells him and his brother to run. Just tells him to get the fuck out of there. And on the retreat, uh, Goose's older brother is killed and he has nothing else to do at this point. He's just got to keep running and he runs into the jungle, the forest there uh, to try to get away. My note here says this was much more fun when it was district nine, uh, because <laughs> that was something I could at least like sink my teeth into because there was not an overwhelmingly crushing sense of realism to it. District nine obviously has a much bigger message than just aliens coming to earth, but still there was that, ability to kind of remove yourself from the situation that's not here with this one well district um, nine also devoted long chunks of its runtime to setting the scene they had charlotte copley talking directly to the camera <laughs> telling you what's going on which faction right. is which this is why this group hates this group and this is why this group is trying to shoot this group when in this movie when those soldiers show up i had a hard time understanding why they were the bad guys it sounded like they were government officials. Uh, this is kind of a bigger problem in the movie, which is that everything is corrupt. This, this is the worst uh, possible depiction of Africa. You know, it's like basically if you go to Africa and you're a good person, you're fucked because everybody is going to try to gun you down. It's like those guys were looking for an excuse to shoot all these villagers. So I, I think that you need to work with your audience. You can't just pummel your audience with misery after misery, which is what this movie does, right? And uh, if you're going to set up something as horrible as these soldiers killing a goose family and uh, and a goose neighbors, then I think that that's, that's where you stop and you just, you've established that these guys are the bad guys. And then from then on, let me, let a goose meet somebody that's good <laughs> so that as an audience member, I can take a breather and just kind of, settle down but instead what happens is we just that's just the opening salvo in this descent through hell uh that takes two and a half hours yeah and this is kind of where you said <laughs> you realize this wasn't going to be much of a, a good time uh, agu runs into the like i said the the surrounding forest jungle area and he basically gets caught up in like this gorilla attack uh and a lot happens really quick that you can't really register uh but he comes to and he's surrounded by children to maybe mid to late teens. It's it's a, an army of youths, I think, is definitely a, a light way of putting it. And then emerging from them, like Bart, when he takes over Camp Krusty, here comes Idris Elba, the 
the king of the kids, or uh, what's the note I have here? <laughs> Charles Minor, king of the children army. Lord of the flies. Uh, for any of you listeners who are familiar with the Book of Mormon, tell me if I'm the only person who saw Idris Elba emerge from the forest, dressed the way he's dressed, and instantly thought of uh, of him playing... I guess a serious version of uh, General Butt Fucking Naked, because that's that's what General Butt Fucking Naked looks on in the play, and, and he's supposed to be scary, but he's also funny. Uh, here in this movie, Idris Elba looks kind of like a cartoon version of an evil African general, but he is not funny at all, and, and that's kind of a missed opportunity. With his beret and shit, he looks like a weathered G.I. Joe figure, <laughs> yes. like one that's been in storage for 30 years and taken back out to finally be played with. He's mad about it. Yeah, and he, but with none of the charm. And here in a very indie film-like nature, we don't get a character name for him, or we don't get an actual name. We just we know him as Commandant. Like, uh, like you would, I'm trying to think of like those indie films that just have the female lead as girl. Uh, Drive, where Ryan Gosling is just driver. In this case, Idris Elba is simply Commandant. Sadly, Agu really has no choice. He's a small child with no family out in the middle of nowhere with nowhere to go. So he joins the the troop here, the, the child army of Idris Elba. And one thing I will say from a cinematic perspective is this movie seems to have a little bit of an identity crisis because the way the sequence here, you could even argue about the next 10 minutes of the movie, the way it's shot is like a horror film. Uh, which varies greatly from the preceding 20 minutes maybe that we've gone into it so far. Mm-hmm. There, throughout it, there's a couple of stylistic choices that I thought were really weird and misplaced, and this sequence here is it felt a lot like uh, the Green Inferno where they're captured by the local tribe and you know they're all brought in and just really terrified about what's going on. Obviously, this situation here is pretty terrifying too. The ultimate dunk on a movie is to compare it to an Eli Roth movie. <laughs> Well, don't get me wrong. This gentleman here, uh, Carrie, is far more capable than Eli Roth, but that's what it reminded me of And because my note just says, is this a horror movie? Yes, it is, to be fair. Ask Agu. Yeah, yeah, and Agu is just surrounded by this literal army of raw testosterone. It's a vicious process here. It's the NDF, the Native Defense Forces that he ends up joining, Mm -hmm. and... Yeah, it's a lot like a Lord of the Flies situation, just with Idris Elba at the helm of it. Charles Minor there calling the shots. Yeah, I go back to this just this general sense of being lost and unknowing what the hell was going on. Because okay, so they are the they're this this special ops force, this this kind of militia running around. So, but I never understood what they were against. What are they fighting? Are they fighting? Uh, villagers like a goose people are they fighting the soldiers that killed a goose people are they killing other kind of natives because when a goo runs into them they're they're chasing other people that are not soldiers and are not people from a goose village again are you telling me that it's just basically africa is a sort of free-for-all shootout endless shootout where it's just people killing each other 24 7 I mean, I, I guess that's what the movie wants you to believe. I haven't been there, but I think places like Johannesburg are supposed to be pretty nice. But again, I, I don't know. It's like uh, it's like Australia where there's like Sydney and then the rest is the, the outback. 
<laughs> there's Sydney and Perth, and then everywhere else you go, you are like eaten by snakes or spiders or something. Right. That's that's my understanding of Australia. We follow Agu through a vicious initiation cycle of him being beaten, you know, kind of manipulated mentally, just put through the ringer almost to a literal extent. Uh, we follow him up to him working with the NDF on their first ambush. And this is where, sadly, Agu is positioned for his first kill. He ends up, uh, what we're supposed to believe is an innocent man, he ends up hitting with a like a hatchet or a makeshift hatchet of some sort. As I mentioned off air, it took me back uh, to Watchmen in the similar fashion of Rorschach's first kill. Except this is... Uh, less artful than Zack Snyder's beautifully shot <laughs> yeah. massacre. Yeah, this is very raw, very visceral, uh, guttural, and you see kind of every piece of it, and it is unrelenting. It's also unnecessary, because I don't need to see every second of this man getting hatchet to death. Thank you. I just, I, you know what? I, I just needed to stay on the close-up of Agu, and even that would have been disturbing enough. Right, the fact that he does it is really what what shakes you, and then just the fact that the camera just keeps showing you what happens is just it's overkill. But then overkill is the middle name of this movie. I mean, it's just that's what's going to happen every time that there is any sort of a violent situation on screen. Fukunaga is not going to look away. Instead, he's going to zoom in. And just like hold it there, it's like, dude, it's not necessary. There's a point where you you just end up uh, not even desensitizing me to the violence, but more like just pushing me away from the movie. There's there's an art, I think, to handling violence. And man, I hate to say it, but but in this specific uh, this specific set of circumstances, you actually needed somebody like Zack Snyder to handle it. You know, somebody that knew exactly how to walk that line and how much to show you, when to slow down, when to put on some 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 cool soundtrack drop, uh, and when to look away. When to show restraint. Yep. The story of Zack Snyder's career. <laughs> no, that that would just be the his autobiography, Restraint Colon, the Zack Snyder story. <laughs> restraint question mark. <laughs> the Zack Snyder. Six hours into my Justice League movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's at this point, you know, you want to feel for Agu, but the movie itself is just so it's such a beating on its audience. It's more of just you end up like selfishly feeling for yourself. You're like, man, I don't know how much more of this I could take. <laughs> and then you realize, man, I wonder how much more Agu could take. It's not it's not a good scene whatsoever. Uh, fortunately, if there is any solace here from the sequence of the movie is that Agu is not alone in that he is a small boy. Uh, I don't know if it's ever specifically stated. How old do you reckon he is? Nine or ten? Uh, yeah, he's definitely not a preteen. He, I, w- I would say ten. No. And everybody else around him, or at least, you know, it, it, yeah, I wanted to mention the, I, I, I'm assuming you're going to go into the sort of supporting cast that we have in this movie, uh, which, again, going back to the misleading nature of the storytelling here, uh, everybody has kind of colorful, fun names. Uh, so you have Striker. Striker. <laughs> Striker. Uh, you yeah. have, uh, is it 2IC? 2IC. Mm-hmm. Which I kept thinking 2IC, like Fruit Punch or Lemonade. Uh, and then there's Preacher. I'm sure there are a couple others. And of course, Commandant. And then there's 2ICs, 
best friend Ecto Cooler. Yes. And <laughs> yeah, and then Commandant with his fucking beret. That's we'll get to it. It, but kind of jumping ahead, there's a reason he wears that beret. Fucking state of Idris Elba's bald spot in this movie, man. Good God. But he does have a budding friendship here with Stryka as he is a boy that was once in Agu's situation. They're both similar age. And sadly, he's seen the shit that Agu has and is going to continue to see. They, in their first like full-fledged attack, they are trying to push into a different city. I think eventually where they end up going is Taro, if I'm not mistaken, where they meet up with the rest of the NDF. Uh, but they're just trying to continue their push and their warning villages that, you know, we're coming, that type of thing. At one point, Idris Elba mentions, you know, leave one person alive so they can go to the next village and tell them. And then they'll continue the trend of the cycle. There's a big shootout where they lose several men in their effort to take a bridge to get further into a city. That's obviously very upsetting and dramatic. And But this is what it exists to do is show here that Agu is a full-fledged soldier here in the NDF. Uh, yeah, did you ever get the feeling, because uh, I did for sure, that there was no real purpose <laughs> to uh, to Idris Elba's army? You know, it just felt like they were meandering through Africa, killing people, but there was, I mean, he acted like, like there was a plan, but then at some point, I would say about halfway through the movie, you realize, sort of, what is the plan? To just go square mile through square mile and shooting whatever <laughs> doesn't join your cause. It, it seemed like uh, an unrealistic goal. You know, most war movies, any any, any movie that has some sort of a, a military strategy to it, you know, at some point, somebody sits down with a map and then they, they have arrows and they explain to the army, but also to the audience, these are the goals. This is how you know that the movie's over when we accomplish this. <laughs> Right, I I had I never got that feeling with this movie. It was just like, so they walk around and they shoot people. His speeches were a lot like uh, Lancaster Dodd. They just kind of yes. went on. And, uh, unfortunately, when Two I C ends up passing away later in the movie, he kind of has the last word of this was all for nothing. He kind of realizes it on his deathbed, sadly. But yeah, that it seems like it's just all in principle seems like it's a good idea, but with no actual thought put to it. Yeah, I was missing a, a scene where 2IC questioned uh, the commandant and commandant just went, big fuck. <laughs> yeah, or commandant's son just sitting on the porch tells <laughs> Agu, you know he's making it up as he goes along. <laughs> Preacher would have done that. The scenario and the overall situation and the, you know, the surroundings what Agu has found himself enveloped in every part of it, the nature of his being at this point is just tearing him apart, understandably so. And so of course what this movie wants to do to really show that, you know, you think you feel bad so far. Well, we're going to show you this little kid get hooked on heroin now. So the, I actually had to look it up. They refer to it as Brown Brown Mm -hmm. in the movie. Um, uh, they put it in one of his cuts. They basically, they see that he's distressed and had a hard time with everything that's going on. So they're low here. It'll make you stronger. It'll uh, enhance your mood. It, it's not like pure heroin, but basically it's kind of the basic chemistry of heroin. Uh, sometimes with different things mixed in. I think I read like they might some places mix in smokeless gunpowder, which sounds pretty fucking nuts. I expect a full report next episode after you've, actually tried it (laughs) no thank you Uh, yeah 
Agu, they, they pay this off, though, because he ends up doing so much, but he goes through withdrawals at the end of the movie. It's terrifying. This little boy is going through heroin withdrawals. Yeah, but this is just an excuse for Fukunaga to, to put cool filters in front of his camera and just, you know, paint the sky red and whatever. It, it, I, it feels like a, a stylistic choice, not a character choice. You know, it's not that I'm doing this to give you an insight into into Agu or even into the person that gave him the drugs or or even this this company of men as, as a group. No, I, I'm just doing it because, well, it's been about an hour, hour and a half, and, and I need to, uh, you know, liven things up on, <laughs> on this visual palette. I, I, I don't know. It just feels like such an empty, just an empty gesture. You know, I, I didn't really get anything out of it. He worked it in just because he wanted to get that shot of the grass turning from red to, uh, from green to red. Uh, that was another thing I had called out as an odd style choice because it happens here shortly after uh, Agu's first experience with the heroin, but it doesn't happen at any other point in the movie, like where the surroundings change or alter. I was thinking to myself, what was the point of that, Carrie? I mean, you, you got a really cool shot out of it, but I spent the next 30 minutes of the movie thinking, why did he do that and not do it again at any point? Commit, goddammit. You, you, have exactly. no, you have no problem committing to the violence. You have no problem to committing to making me feel awful throughout this entire movie. At least commit to your stylistic choices for <laughs> some length of this film. And uh, thinking back to it, Brown Brown, any fellow Metal Gear Solid fans of the Contrarians, fellow Metal Gear Solid fans, uh, Raiden in Metal Gear Solid 2, I know there's reference to him uh, utilizing heroin as a child soldier in that game. That's my tie-in for Beast of No Nation and Metal Gear Solid 2. Moving on. This brings us to, for me, the most heart-wrenching moment in the movie as the NDF and these this army of young boys continue to, you know, basically insurge upon villages, burn them down, kill everybody there. We come into a situation where they're in a building. looks kind of like a, maybe an apartment, hotel, projects, that type of thing. And Agu believes he's found his mom and he runs up to this woman and begins hugging her you know, almost to the point of breaking down in tears. And then he realizes it's not her. And this kind of just completely takes him to the dark side, so to speak, and completely just shifts his demeanor for pretty much the duration of the movie. It's for a movie filled with heartbreaking sequences and moments. It's soul crushing. Yeah. And if only it had ended, if he had had the, the taste the sensibility to end with just the realization of this is not his mother. And then he just walks away in a daze. But then once again, this is all about excess. This is all about just mm-hmm. going all in. So Fukunaga spends an extra, what, five, ten minutes just showing you the carnage, the abuse, the just all the horrible things that happen in this, in this village. Once again, completely yeah. unnecessary. You already made your point, dude. You can just, you can stop. Restraint. Zack Snyder's story. (laughs) Pick it up. (laughs) Read it. Appreciate it. They end up leaving this village and they end up going to the NDF headquarters. And I have written down Taro, T-A-R-O. I felt like I read them say that was the city name on the subtitles that I had on. It may have been Cairo they were referencing and just the translation was fucked up on the subtitles. But I thought it said Taro. If I'm incorrect, I apologize. But whatever the case, they arrive at the NDF headquarters as this is where uh, Idris Elba, the commandante, is. uh, he feels this is going to be like his big coronation. I do have note here, the only laugh of the movie, which this isn't a movie I don't think that you're really supposed to laugh. I felt like this was played for kind of a, huh, 
when they roll up, uh, these guards come out and they, I think they say, friend or foe, you know, show your hands. It's just pretty standard stuff. And Idris Elba gets out and he's like, I'm the commandant. Like, what kind of fucking welcome is this? We're here to see so-and-so. And so they're like, oh, okay. They stand down and they let him in. And as the cars are driving by, just one of the soldiers goes, fuck you. And like his voice like trails <laughs> off in the background. I hadn't noticed. <laughs> I, I guess I was just begging for to find anything to be humorous to kind of just elevate the mood of the movie a little bit. But it was just, it was, it felt like, you know, one of those Judd Apatow troop moments in a movie just where someone's walking away and goes fuck you so the, the dvd has a, a whole linorama of many different <laughs> oh, things that God. that soldier <laughs> yelled jesus <laughs> the gag reel on beasts of no nation like fuck you prometheus <laughs> jeez yeah that's like the one outtake that went viral of that was they're <laughs> setting up a scene with idris elba and they start playing like the score from prometheus and everyone on set starts <laughs> laughing at him <laughs> And uh, Charlize Theron walks out from behind one of the trucks. Uh, that would have been like Idris hosting SNL to promote this. He did host SNL in the past few years. I can't remember what it was for. But God, imagine hosting Saturday Night Live to promote a movie like this. <laughs> Jimmy Fallon trying really hard to to not laugh when we're talking about child soldiers. <laughs> yeah, for real. So, so I thought when you said that the one laugh in the movie, I thought you were going to talk about the next scene, which is like he's just sitting in the waiting room and there's a random Asian dude sitting next to him. In like a business suit. Right. But it's just completely, I just, I understand the idea behind the scene, right? Which is that this guy gets called up before Idris Elba. But I don't know. I, I think there was maybe too much contrast. I, I'm not saying that I laughed, but I I couldn't take it seriously. It just It just felt like a... You know, that felt like a gag, like a sketch in the middle of all this death and misery. <laughs> it was like, oh, but now here's a, a nation dude dressed up to the nines meeting with, a, what's it called? The Supreme Leader? I mean, he has the name, uh, I think it's like Papa Bloodgood, but then he has his title. Which uh, is... Dada Goodblood, but Papa Bloodgood <laughs> is even better. <laughs> yeah, the Supreme Leader. But yeah, th- this whole segment of the film, which is maybe five, ten minutes long, I, you get the feeling that we're supposed to have like some sort of sympathy for Idris Elba, but the more I think about it now, it's just more of what we were talking about earlier. He just never had any idea what was actually going on. He never had a through plan that, about any of this. He just thought he was there to be promoted to whatever position. And uh, the Supreme Leader Goodblood just kind of tells him, no, we're actually going to demote you. Uh, uh, 2IC is going to take over your battalion, and you're going to be given a position under him. Yeah, uh, yet another instance where the movie could have used Charlotte Copley kind of looking at the camera and telling us exactly what the hell's going on. Because I was kind of at a loss. I got the demotion and I got the kind of the humiliation of the fact that they were promoting his, I guess, his second in command. You know, too high C becomes a new commandant. But but I didn't really understand why. There's dialogue, but I'm not sure that I follow it. It's something about how it's now it's it's a PR maneuver. So it's the implication that the, the commandant is too uh, too brutal to to actually you know be a good look uh, if he were to be you know to get that promotion. But then I'm thinking it's not like uh, like I see is any better. <laughs> Everybody in that pack is just they're all monsters. So. 
uh, I don't know. I, I just had a hard time understanding the logistics, the political logistics of, of what was happening here. And on top of that, it just kind of, for better or for worse, and it's for both, I think, for better and for worse, the movie has spent most of its runtime establishing Idris Elba as this despicable, overpowering character. It's just the mm. ultimate villain. And now suddenly he gets reduced. He's basically the the African version of Michael Scott, right? He's just... <laughs> bureaucracy got him. He's almost impotent to do anything. For all his bravado, for all the people that he's abused, he's just kind of... He's powerless. And, and he was the most interesting part of the movie. Where is your god now, Idris Elba? That's pretty much <laughs> what he's left with here. So he realizes he has one last night with uh, his troops, so they're going to go out. He frames it as though they're going to go to celebrate 2IC's promotion, and he takes them to what I would surmise to be kind of like uh, the equivalent of a brothel in the area. And God, the scene is fucking tense because knowing the state of mind he's in, you don't really know where it's going. And the score is extremely ominous in the background for like one of two or three times in the movie. So yeah. And then of course, just to pile onto it, there's a bunch of young girls working there. So the the whole thing just feels as greasy and sweaty as all the actors look in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it also, uh, it, I don't know. I, I just felt that from here on, I wasn't a big fan of the movie to begin with. But here's where just the, the creaks start to show, I think. Because I'm sure you could tell, I could tell, I think everybody in, in, the, in the movie, everybody in that scene could tell that this was all about getting rid of 2IC. Right? It, it's just... Yes. He's not being... Uh, Idris Elba is not being subtle about it. <laughs> he's... Uh, you know, maybe Agu, you know, he wasn't just onto it, but everybody else, you know, the, the way that the the madame of the brothel w- was acting and just the way that uh, Idris Elba basically it sets him up with the oldest trick in the world. It's like you go with the with this hooker into this room and you'll be safe there. And instead what happens is twice he gets shot. And uh, to me, I mean, you know that he knew it was it was all set up by uh, by Idris Elba because he tells Idris Elba, you did this. <laughs> Uh, so it was just I don't know how do you explain in a logical way that 2IC didn't just either shoot the commandant there right away or didn't like run away or didn't do anything to stop what was his uh, basically his his sure death yeah and then they use like a trope that is tried and true in comedy the whole I accidentally shot somebody and it's just like (laughs) horrifying you know it's not uh, what's the old school where Sean William Scott accidentally shoots Will Ferrell with the dart gun or Will Ferrell accidentally shoots himself, whatever you get the point I'm trying to make here. That's a funny trope. A guy accidentally gets shot. Not here. Like, you know, you would think this would be the one laugh of the movie where the guy accidentally gets shot, but God, it's fucking terrifying. And you feel bad for him. Cause again, two IC is like what? 20 maybe at the most. And he's in the middle of nowhere at this disgusting brothel that he's been taken for right with warm beer for Christ's sake. It was, <laughs> A horrible, horrible way to go. And I guess, do you think that the Commandant, uh, do you think Charles Minor had this plan from the jump that he was going to take him, get him killed, and then just kind of, they oh, yeah. were going to just... A hundred percent, because what's the alternative? I mean, the story that, that the Commandant tries to spin this into, it's even more unbelievable. What he says is that the Supreme Leader had hired the prostitute to try to kill the Commandant, but... Instead, they accidentally killed Twicey because they thought that was him. Yes, and because then he has a 
uh, um, Agu and Stryka kill the other women in the brothel. Right. But to me, that sounds like a flimsier story than just like, oh, this guy who just got demoted and his second in command just got promoted to his position uh, was obviously angry about it. So he's going to take him to the middle of nowhere to get rid of him. <laughs> That's a simpler explanation. Yes, <laughs> that works a lot easier and better. Yeah. Did you notice but... that uh, Idris Elba, as great as an actor as he can be, he kind of becomes uh, Al Pacino in this sequence? His eyes are big and he's like, what? You shoot me? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I did notice that. <laughs> Great call. I couldn't put a, a name to who he was acting like, but this is where Fukunaga told Idris, just have fun with this one. <laughs> Sadly, as if things aren't sad enough with everything going on, this is where things take a very dramatic turn in that uh, the Commandant uh, takes his remaining men and he's like, fuck it, we're doing our own thing now. They're basically a group of mercenaries. They're not even mercenaries because they're not getting paid to do what they're doing. They're just... Uh, pack a of group killers. of recluses. <laughs> yeah, the pack of recluses and killers, exactly. And things aren't slowing down for them. It just becomes one death after another. They're just walking into, you know, uh, constant gunfire, ambushes, airstrikes. It's just one after another. It's a barrage of just downfall for their group. Uh, of course, the manipulation continues with uh, Agu as the commandant tells him, you know, you're my son, you, I'm your father, you don't betray your father, you, you don't know who you can trust anymore, you got to sleep with one eye open. He exhausts the book of cliches even more than I do on an episode <laughs> of The Contrarians. And probably the, the hardest scene in this movie for me to watch is, you know, everything's bad and it eventually leads to Stryker getting injured. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he kind of lets out this cry and it's the only time we see him or it's the only time we hear him really any yep. an utterance or speak any type of audible noise in the whole movie. Yeah, uh, it's it's a two-edged sword because I do believe that yes, the fact that he's been silent the entire movie gives this moment more weight because he you finally hear sound coming out of his mouth and that's that's powerful. The other side of it though, the problem is that because he's never really talked and he's never we never really got to know him. You know, it's like you lost a lot when you decided that you were not going to have this character express himself in any way. And so when he eventually dies from his gunshot, I was like, I mean, that sucks, but it could have been almost anyone. And I would have had the same reaction. Man, it's a shame that this kid got shot and died. But there's not like he's not a specific character. All he had was the cool name and the fact that he was kind of the one that was hanging out with the good the most. But as far as him as a character, I don't know him. Again, I think that for a stylistic choice, uh, it works. But as far as a character choice and a narrative device, not so much. We do get a stylistic choice here that I actually enjoy. Uh, Agu is with Preacher. They're basically in a, a not a foxhole, but uh, up in the crow's nest is the expression I'm looking for. And Preacher runs out of ammunition, and we get this really cool panning shot of Agu going through the trenches looking for ammunition. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, because it's, uh, yeah. I guess it's supposed to be blood that he's like up to his ankles, I think, and some sort of red liquid in these trenches. You know what? Oh, I thought it was just like mud. Mud? Because the, the clay that's surrounding them, the kind of orangish clay, I just thought it was like the runoff of that. Maybe it's supposed to be blood, and the the artistic nature just flew right over my head. Either way, um, it's 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 from Fukunaga for not making it clearer. Yeah. They're out of ammunition. They ain't got shit. They're 
They have literally no way to defend themselves any longer. This is what I was referring to earlier. The fucking state of Idris Elba's bald spot right here. Uh, (laughs) It's not often someone's bald spot is on their fucking forehead that has hair growing around it. It is a sight to behold here. And he is just, he's a defeated man, but he's such an egomaniac that he won't allow it. And all the young men are, they say they want to leave. They want to go and surrender. And it comes to him asking, like, Agu, do you want to go too? And he says yes. And I think Agu points the gun at him at one point. And, right. Well, uh, first, uh, okay, so did I mishear or is there a new 2IC now? Because so a guy comes up to him and tells him, I want to yeah. go. And he's like, 2IC, you want to go? <laughs> I'm like, wait, that's what? right. Is there a deleted scene? It must be a ranking title. Yeah. Yeah. He should have been 3IC. <laughs> Jeez. Yes, the replacement. <laughs> two IC Junior. Yeah. Uh but yeah, so the new two IC wants to go and he points a gun at, at Idris Elba. And then Idris Elba says, Well, you don't have any bullets. And then Agu points a gun at Idris Elba. And and they have the confrontation. Yeah. This is the, the the climax of the movie is Idris Elba facing off against a child. It, that's a little <laughs> underwhelming. A la Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. He has the gun pointed at him. Uh, Charles Minor takes the gun. And in Texas Chainsaw, McConaughey puts the gun in his mouth. But in this case, uh, the commandant puts the gun to his heart. And he's like, pull the trigger. You won't do it. And Agu doesn't. And Agu, uh, the Abraham, is a much better actor in this movie than Renee Zellweger was in that movie. So it's a much more dramatic scene. And you have a feel much more for the... The character here, the protagonist, and but he puts the gun down, and the way the commandant interprets that is the rest of the men can leave, but he thinks he's still got Agu on his side, and Agu takes off with him, and you know he's ready to get away from all this, so they leave the commandant behind, and that is the last we see of Idris Elba in this movie. And Did you feel cheated that we never got to see this motherfucker die? <laughs> kind of. That that seems to be something that is a staple of war movies. And I'm not even just talking about specific to movies like this West, West African uh, period pieces or dramatic pieces. It's that really seems to be something that I've noticed about war movies that I don't like is like the real assholes seem to get off a lot of the times. That's what makes, you know, we've talked about in these podcasts before, like gratifying deaths in movies mm-hmm. and Idris Elba eating shit in this movie would have been super gratifying. But I think that wasn't necessarily what this movie wanted to provide its audience with, any type of gratification. And I think they didn't want to provide the audience with the getting to see Idris Elba's character die. And we'll get more into that in the real talk portion of this podcast. Are you telling me that uh, as they were finishing shooting, they had maybe a couple days left, Fukunaga finally read Restrained by Zack Snyder. And it's like, you know what, guys? Just scrap that final sequence where Agu actually comes back and shoots him repeatedly in the head. And and fucking Idris Elba's sitting there. Tom Savini's doing like makeup on his face to make it look like <laughs> half of his head's open. And he just looks at Fukunaga and you dirty rat. I just sit through four hours of this shit. <laughs> Agu and the rest of the battalion make their way. They're confronted with, uh, I believe, by some uh, soldiers representing the U.N., and they, they're they very forward about it. We're here to surrender. And they put their guns down and hands behind their head, the whole ordeal. They're all carted away. Uh, we don't really see. I think they're loaded in the back of a truck. Uh, we don't see the extent of what happens with us. But what we know is that they're 
they're ushered eventually to a boys' school. They're ushered into another movie. This, to me, felt like we were in the sequel. This is just two hours worth of Agu kind of reincorporating into society. That's what it should have been. But instead, they kind of fast forward through a very complex process. This is where we get like the walk the line scene of him going through withdrawals of heroin in the bed. And he's mentioning, I think Precha is there with him as well. Mm -hmm. And... They're all having a hard time adjusting. Obviously, the boys that went through all this horrific shit are having a hard time adjusting to it. Uh, Agu is not really able to socialize with the other kids. And then we get kind of the, the, not kind of, we get the closing scene or the lead into the close here where Agu meets with the school counselor and she, you know, wants to talk to him about why he's so disturbed. And he just tells her, you know, I've done some terrible things. And th- this would easily be, uh, Abraham's Oscar clip here because he has that very wise beyond his years line of she says you know you'll feel better if you talk about it and he's like if I talk about it it's going to make me sad and it's going to make you sad and I just want to be happy in this moment in my life right now it's some pretty powerful shit not going to lie yeah it's kind of a shame that it's also in the same speech where he misses the opportunity of having a titular line because he says I will tell you about what I did, and you think you'll think I'm a beast, and you think you get excited because you think he's gonna say, "You'll think I'm a beast of no nation," but instead he says, "I'm a beast or a devil," and I am. And I was like, "That's okay, that's okay," but that's not the same as actually saying the title of the movie, which is what we needed at this in these these closing moments. Just everyone kind of on the edge of their seat, or the <laughs> what's the Sims say the line, Bart. <laughs> Beast of no nation. After this discussion with the counselor, though, it appears that Agu is ready to start anew. I did not mean for that to rhyme, but he goes out to the ocean and watches the other kids play. And for the first time since he's been sent to the school, he gets back out in the water again and he goes out and begins playing with the children. And that's when we fade to black. And that's how it ends. <laughs> this is this is all it took for for this movie to to get. To its happy ending. One, they ran out of bullets. That had to happen. That was <laughs> that's how you get rid of Idris Elba's power over these men. They have to run out of bullets. But two, when they're on their way to surrendering, they just happen to run conveniently into the one group of people in Africa that's not going to kill them. Because so far, all Agu's done in his adventures throughout the movie is run into people with guns that are out to kill him and the people with him. It happened in his village. It happened when he ran into uh, uh, Idris Elba's men. And then it happened when Idris Elba's men ran into other people. It It's just basically, for the last 10 minutes of the movie, conveniently, Africa stops being like the Wild West. And now suddenly there's civilization and... and we have a way of fixing these kids. It just seems like such a sudden turn into into hope and a brighter future that I had a harder a hard time buying it because of the way that the movie's been up till then. Yeah, I mean, truth be told, I'm glad there was some semblance of a happy ending and it was tied up rather non-convolutedly with all we had been through. I was just like, please just give me some semblance of hope to take this out on. Fukunaga just, he broke you. He's like, I'm going to make you so miserable that you are going to welcome whatever bullshit happy ending I throw at you at the end. It worked. That's a trope more directors could take note from. 
just make everything so soul crushingly depressing that when the ending comes, you can do anything. And as long as it's one iota more positive than everything else that's preceded it, people will be like, brilliant. You were ready to to just completely buy it if uh, if Agu's mom showed up at the end, like in that beach scene. She's like, Agu? Yes. And he turns and he smiles and then freeze frame. Written Why and directed not? by Kari Fukunaga. It's like I told you when we watched Slumdog. That ending is what that movie needs to make up for like how depressing a lot of that movie is. <laughs> well, Alex, we made it. We did. We weathered the conditions and we, we made it to the other side. We tamed the beasts of no nation. Well, I don't know about that, but we at least were able to navigate these choppy waters and not uh, compromise our podcasting integrity <laughs> and also not make too light of a very serious movie not lose our humanity so suck it dan <laughs> if you're trying to break us you didn't succeed you are no fukunaga <laughs> and that's not a challenge yeah that's not it i don't know i don't want any fucking patreon telling us to watch a serbian film or some shit <laughs> i think this i think this is about as extreme as we can go with what we do <laughs> all right well uh let's go to real talk you will go back to your village and your family will not associate themselves with you. Uh, you will be nothing. You and your uneducated poor mind you will be nothing. Nobody will care for you. Uh, look at you. Uh, and you will wake up and you will rise and see the sunrise and see the sunset and you go just wait all day, all day. With thousands of men just like you, waiting for somebody to give you a job. Uh, that is what you want to go and do? You are stupid. <laughs> I'm nothing. No future. I am your future. You fucking die here, sir. What? How are you going to shoot me if you don't have bullets? All right, and we are back. Before we get into real talk, it's time for the patron segment. What should we call it? Should we call it the patron pitch? The PP? We have CC, RT, and now PP. I don't know. That sounds bad. Uh, I, I think it's pretty on brand if we have the PP to kick off RT. <laughs> All right. CC leads to PP leads to RT. Let us know if that works for you Sounds guys. good. Uh, anyway, yes. If you are a patron, then uh, you get to listen to more stuff from us, including uh, things that didn't make it into the episode. I wonder how much of that will <laughs> will be this time around. If I, As we're editing, I will I'll listen to what we did and I'll be like, you know what? That sounded funny at the time, but now it sounds <laughs> very... Uh, off color. Off color. <laughs> just, yeah. Uh, just call Kelly and call your wife and be like, hey, Kelly, does this make us sound bad? <laughs> That's, yeah. But she'll be like, I, I always think you guys sound bad. But That's true. Yeah. Um, anyway, yes. So the, the thing is, if you're a patron by now, you've already listened to our Under the Silver Lake episode. That was the other Dan Brennick pick for this month. And that was a hoot. Yes. Stark contrast. We recorded that last night, and uh, it was the mood in the recording was the complete 
opposite of the mood in this recording. <laughs> it was just joyous celebration last night, and hopefully that translated in the episode uh, that you, patrons, and only you got to listen to. But anyway, the other thing we do for patrons is our extended plug segment. Uh, Alex, what are you going to plug this time? Uh, I know I already talked about video games in the first portion there with my Metal Gear Solid rant. And, you know, I talk about video games a lot of the time, and I wasn't even going to talk about it just because it's so fucking nerdy, but I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about my Pandora Box 3D 12S that I got in the mail uh, two weeks ago because, Julio, you were, and anyone that follows me on Twitter was apprised to the entire journey that was getting that thing shipped from China, and it's so fucking awesome, and I spent like a year researching those, <laughs> and I'll go into the whole, the like I said, the saga, the the franchise of this whole story uh, in the Patreon plug, but I'll be discussing that, where you can get one, making sure you get the right one, and what all you can expect. I am excited, because yeah, you've told me a little bit about it, but I'm ready to hear about it now that you actually have it in your hands. Um, for my part, my journey through documentaries continues. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Boy State, uh, which is a documentary that I think it's only available on Apple Plus or Apple TV, which kind of sucks. But at the same time, if you need a reason to get Apple TV, this is a good one. Uh, and then a documentary that's also exclusive, uh, but only to HBO Max, and that is American Utopia, which uh, I don't know that we've ever talked about David Byrne and Talking Heads. I don't know how you feel about them, if you feel any way about them, but uh, we'll get into that in the extended plug section. So... If you want to be a patron, if you're not a patron, you want to be a patron, patron.com slash contrarian prime. That's where you'll see our tiers. As the tiers go up, the amount of content that you get from us gets bigger. I am happy to report that we have patrons on every tier, which makes me very happy because it means that they're working. They're tailored to different, uh, uh, I guess, different amounts of interest <laughs> that our patrons may have in all the bullshit that we put out. So, um, and. The tiers go $1, $3, $5, $10. Is that correct? That is correct. And if I remember correctly, it is Travolti's, Winoni's, Embry's, Gads. Yeah. If you want to get some of the stuff we're talking about, some of this content, see our notes. See my notes here on uh, Beast of No Nation, where I was really struggling to try to think of anything that could be perceived as comedic. Uh, I mean, just a dollar. The price, less than a cup of coffee a month will get you some access to some of our supplements on the Contrarians. So... Don't feel bad if you can't give us that full 10. We'll still take a dollar all the same. Yeah. yeah, Stuff like the the bonus episode, like the Under the Silver Lake, that everybody gets access to that. So, uh, And then if that encourages you to, uh, to just get more stuff, even better. And like I said, for those higher tiers, the $5 and $10 that get you uh, access to add an episode into canon... Please do not look at this as a challenge. This was very <laughs> difficult. I mean, you can. Like I said, we're not looking for you to ask us to watch Happiness or uh, Cannibal Holocaust or some shit like that. Uh, we'll try to make it happen if it comes to that. But, you know, Jesus, we're, we're trying to. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite the commitment you're putting out there, Alex. But I'm saying, like, I think our listeners would be more, they would want us to get the most out of it. And I'm saying, if you're looking at it like a challenge and doing that, you're going to get some very, very demure episodes. So <laughs> give us some softballs. Give us fucking Sleepless in Seattle or Fever Pitch or some shit. Uh, anyway, speaking of patrons, just to close out this this segment, patron Gerald from Two Peas on a Pod, uh, he's having his his award show uh i want to say next month so he asked me if i could run the promo for it and i said 
Gerald, you are a patron. Your wish is my command. Uh, so here it is, the promo for The Golden Peas. Hello, listeners. I want to talk to you for one second real quick about the Golden Pea Movie Awards, referred to lovingly as the Golden Peas. Every year, I take the opportunity to celebrate the year in film, and 2020 is no different. Please head over to twopeasonapod.com slash golden peas and find all of the nominees as well as links to a ballot that you can use to vote. Voting is open from January 29th until March 1st of 2021. We feature all of the main categories that you will find at shows like the Golden Globes and the Oscars, but we poll the film and Twitter and podcast community to get those nominees. And as you know, they are chosen by you. So please cast a ballot, head over. Once again, it's twopeasonapod.com slash golden peas. We love movies and we love celebrating movies. And we hope you come to the party this year. All right. That was the golden peas. Vote, participate, enjoy. Now we can go into real talk for Beasts of No Nation. Oh boy. Beasts of No Nation. Released, uh, premiered, excuse me, uh, in Venice on September 3rd, 2015. Moved to a worldwide release on October 16th. As we mentioned, and as is kind of part of the legacy behind this movie, is that it was the original Netflix movie. I remember still working at the theater in 2012, 2014. When did X-Men First Class come out? It would have been one of those years. Mm. Um 14 might have been i just remember that was there was initial discussion that that movie was going to be direct to streaming uh in some aspect and that because uh, i remember we had a banner for it and we had to take it down when they were in negotiations for that because none of the movie theater chains would advertise it because huh. the typical the typical clause is 90 days um within like theatrical release you can't have a home video streaming what have you within a 90-day window you tell that to warner brothers now my friend (laughs) i know it's a different world that we live (laughs) in now so netflix bought the distribution rights for it for 12 million dollars it was released theatrically and online on the same day that uh, previously mentioned uh, october 16th uh as i mentioned that violates the 90-day release window so amc carmike cinema Cinemark and Regal all boycotted the movie, and that's basically the Mount Rushmore of modern movie theater chains. And so it obviously had a very, very limited theatrical release, which the box office return was like less than a hundred thousand uh, dollars for a film with a budget of six million. But like I said, Netflix had already covered all the expenses. They're like, hey, here's a here's a cool twelve. <laughs> Take that and. Uh, eat yourself, but buy yourself something nice with it. <laughs> buy yourself a nice so. beret. Um, Alex, this is, I mean, I don't want to derail the conversation too much, and this might end up actually Uh-oh. being into going just straight into the, the cutting room floor segment for patrons, but I just, now that you've said that, it makes me laugh a little bit, and it also, it's just, you know, just the idea of, um, you know, AMC, Cinemark, Regal, whatever, just closing ranks and getting, going fuck you, we, we are taking a stance that you will not do this to the streaming services. Yeah. And then, you know, years later. Five years later, <laughs> being bent over a barrel. Yep, yep. And, and they're going like, we don't understand. Why are you so mean to us? 
<laughs> we were always there for you. <laughs> yeah. Bitches. Yep. Uh, I thought you were going to have a, a sidebar about Idris Elba's beret. You're going to be like, did you know he actually stole that from Che Guevara's grave? <laughs> but then he put it back once shooting was done. Exactly. I mean, that covers it pretty much on my end. Like I mentioned, it was uh, critically and I guess commercially successful for the limited release it had. Uh, it did about as good as it could have hoped to. And then, like I said, Netflix buying it for that big chunk of change, that helps too. And then critically, you know, Idris Elba specifically, and also Abraham uh, Atta, Atta, uh, again, sorry, brother, if I'm mispronouncing your name, they were specifically heralded so much. So, like I said, I think the most notable or not notable, the most uh, well-known award that he was nominated for was the Golden Globe for best uh, performance by an actor in a supporting role in any motion picture. It is based off a book by the same name by a gentleman by the name of Uzo Dinma Iwila. And again, I'm apologizing, mispronouncing your name, sir. Uh, It follows a similar tale, kind of um, a bit ambiguous as to what the location in Africa is. Like I said, the reason I was saying Ghana, I I don't know if I said that in the first portion, but when I was talking to you a little bit earlier about this, I I kept saying Ghana because that's where it was shot. I don't know Mm. if that's specifically called out or it's supposed to be. Uh, I think it kind of adds to the ambiguity of it all. There was some controversy surrounding it as there was an article that suggested that Fukunaga had appropriated content without crediting the work of Irish artist Richard Mossy, whose work had gained notoriety in the art world for its use of infrared film and stirring deceptions of child soldiers in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, To support the accusation of plagiarism, uh, this piece included direct comparisons of individual frames of the film an original still photography by Mossy. I thought that was interesting enough, uh, but it doesn't really, that's just specific to a little bit of the shooting style. It doesn't say that like he, he took liberties with the story or anything like that. Uh, it was a novel. It was based on a novel. And I thought that the, so I thought that the, the plagiarism or whatever it was because he had just made the movie about the book without credit in the book. <laughs> <laughs> a book by nerve. the exact same name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the novel, similar tale. Uh, it's not based off of any real person or anything like that. But that's not to say that this shit doesn't happen and hasn't happened. And especially for periods of time, there were countless examples of it. Very sadly enough, um, I think it's just more of a composite tale of it all. So, Julio, being that it's 92% before you and I get into our personal feelings about it, that does mean there's an 8% of people. I will be very curious to see if these reviews you found are anything more than just it's too depressing to watch. Uh, No, there's there's a little bit of everything here. Uh, Actually, just starting with the novel, uh, Matt Prigge from Metro says, despite being based on a novel by Uzodima Iwala, it plays like it was written by someone who half remembers something he read in The New Yorker that one time. And I think that the general criticism is that it can feel very superficial amongst all its violence, which I think it's worth discussing. Um, 
Mark Dushik from Mark Reviews Movies says, There is only so much of this we can take in before the movie starts to feel like a repetitive exercise in despair. And I can also, I can see that. This one, Ignaty Vishnevetsky from the AV Club says, One could claim that the film is meant to present a perspective desensitized to violence. But then, what is the movie sensitive to, aside from tastefully composing widescreen in thirds? Okay. I like that question. I don't know that I agree with it. I, I need to like let it simmer. But asking what the movie's sensitive to just really tickled me. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good question, but it's a well-phrased question. Um, and finally, this one is just complete bullshit. <laughs> Alonso Diaz de la Vega from El Universal says, not going for neither political commentary or a reflective film about a perverse take on family makes this just another bland chapter in cinema history. Bland? Yeah, it's like your opinion, man. (laughs) Yeah, I just... I mean, you can call this movie many things, but I don't know that bland is the right word there. No. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to... It's going to be kind of hard for me to argue with any of those. Uh, Homeboy... Fukunaga clearly had a an idea for what he wanted to do. It's a good looking film. The knock about the widescreen was pretty humorous, but I don't know, man. It's like I'll go ahead and say I'm going to abstain from giving it a letter raid at the end of this because it's not a movie I have any desire to watch again. <laughs> and it's coward. one of those things of like, <laughs> well, yeah, uh, Dan at least had a little mercy on me. I didn't have to watch it twice. This was your second time seeing yep. it. <laughs> oh, no, four. I've, seen, I've watched it four times now. <laughs> There's it's, one time that I had it playing in the background. I was cleaning the house and, you know, I just kind of had it on. Um, it's well acted and really well presented. It looks good. I think movies like this, there need there needs to be movies like this. I think that's one of the most important things I want to go ahead and start with. There need to be movies like this, like Saving Private Ryan, like Schindler's List, I think, that very, uh, to an upsetting extent, show these real life situations and scenarios of they need to exist for educational purposes is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. You know, those movies I kind of jokingly referenced earlier that my go-to is always a Serbian film, which again, I have not seen. I've only read the plot synopsis and that was enough for me. There's no purpose for things like that to existing, even though you could argue that, you know, the things depicted in this movie are just as disturbing as movies, as things depicted in like fucking uh, the house that Jack built. Uh, I mentioned happiness earlier, cannibal Holocaust, things like that. But those movies don't exist to educate. They exist to soothe or stroke one's ego or, you know, for a director or a writer to jack off on film type thing. And this clearly is a movie intended to educate about the horrors that have ripped Africa apart. And, you know, like I mentioned Invictus earlier, too, which is not uh, clearly not as visceral as this. It's more of it sides almost on the political thriller aspect of it. But this isn't like dated either there's still horrors that a lot of people go through constantly in west africa and south africa so seeing movies like this while like i said i have no desire to watch it again i think it it's the type of movie that if someone watched it and was like is that really a thing and then kind of learned from it that that's why i think movies like this need to exist and i think to be taken with the degree of seriousness that it was because the subject matter is rough. You know, with like nom movies back in the day, 
I think people took a lot of liberties with making them more sometimes more about action. And obviously, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of World War II movies that take liberties with the the actual meat and root of the matter. So for this, I guess that's the one thing I would be most complimentary about. Not too many liberties taken in the sense of like we're going to Hollywoodize this, and because it's a movie, so we got to make it, you know. Uh, we got to make this aspect of it pretty, or we got to add a love story to it, or we got to, you know, reunite him with his mom. I think that was uh, to again to mention Slumdog because I think there are some parallels between the two. I remember some people being like upset that Slumdog ended the way it did because they felt like it betrayed some of the movie. And to a certain extent, I kind of understand that because I feel like exactly like you said, if he was reunited with his mom at the end of this movie, it would kind of feel like it betrayed what the whole tone of the movie was meant to be mm-hmm. just for the sake of having a Hollywood ending. Right, because and, you know um, that that those children, they don't get that happy ending. Exactly, exactly. And to repeat, I think the ending of Slumdog is wonderful. And I think Slumdog <laughs> is a good movie, so I don't want it to seem like I'm one of those people. Uh, with the yo-yoing of emotions i went through with that i don't think that's going to be the same for this because like i said julio and i will let you talk i know i've just been rambling now for a few minutes but uh, i know you need to let it out you've been holding it since you finished the movie probably yeah my sister came in i was i watched it back in my room because i was doing some job applications and stuff today and she was like what is this it was like beast of no nations she's like that sounds sad. And I'm like, it's a movie about, you know, war in West Africa with Idris Elba and child soldiers. She's like, yeah, that sounds really sad. <laughs> and I came out and I was like starting to tell her about it and like certain parts of it. And she's like, they had Idris Elba doing that. No. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, but this movie certainly accomplished its goal with me. And it's a movie that I'm thankful that I hadn't seen until now. Cause this is definitely a movie that if you, I don't know, five years ago, yeah, I was I was a different person five years ago. My fear is that I wouldn't have been mature enough to emotionally kind of understand this because there's so many movies you watch when you're younger that you think you understand mm-hmm. and you really don't. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad I saw it at this point in my life. And I, th- I, I feel if uh, Fukunaga was here right now, he and I could talk about it and I understood what he was trying to accomplish. And I think he would appreciate that. So unless he turned out to be just this massive prick he was like you don't get it man it's a dark comedy (laughs) i think i got what the movie was trying to accomplish that's about the most i can say i i feel the movie accomplished what it was going for with me and in that sense it worked and it was very impactful I don't think I could say I really necessarily got emotional at any point when fucking Stryka died. That made me really sad because the way that whole scene played out, because, you know, Agu had learned at that point that he can't cry and he can't show emotion. So he was trying really hard not to cry Mm -hmm. and his only friend dying. God, just heart wrenching. But man, it was it was pretty rough. It was one of the uh, more brutal movies I've seen in a while, because like we've talked about, I typically try to kind of stray away from these now in an advanced age of <laughs> because because emotions are so much different the older you get like shit like this could certain movies have like taken me out for like days at a time just mentally yeah so it's one of those things of i don't think i would have gone on my way to see this but i'm i'm not i don't regret watching it 
Yeah, I think it's it's I think it's okay for a movie to be one of those that you're like, this was good. I don't need to watch it ever again. I maybe I would have thought that that was not a good thing a few years ago, but now I I think that that's that's fine. It's some things that can just drain you so much, and I think it's okay to feel like you got everything you were going to get on that just that one go. I, at the same time, I gotta say I appreciated this movie more this second time around, and. Uh, if Dan hadn't made us watch it, I probably never would have revisited it because that first time around was rough enough. And I was like, kind of like you just said, you know, I felt like I'd gotten what the movie was saying. I appreciated everything it did well, which is a lot. I had some qualms with it. And I, I mentioned it before we started recording, you know, I kind of looked over my letterbox review from a few years ago when I first watched it. And I'm like, you know, this still applies. I feel the same way about all the positives and the negatives, but I feel like I appreciate the, ne- the positives more and the negatives don't bother me as much. Uh, the positives would be just that I think it's very successful at being that kind of movie, that kind of a... Uh, immersive experience into a nightmare it's like you said you know like saving private ryan i always think about and i mentioned this on the show before i don't remember for which movie or which episode but i always think of the passion of the christ as kind of like the ultimate example of that kind of movie where its sole purpose is to put you in this very specific situation and just make sure you experience it almost in real time right it tenfold yeah and you're just gonna it's this is all about seeing two hours of jesus getting beaten and whipped and tortured and when you come out of it the main thing that sticks with you is that next time somebody references the passion of the christ it's more than just this passage in the bible it's just this really gruesome experience Right. Ideally, it just stays with you mm-hmm. like that. I mean, independently of whatever's good and bad about the movie, you know that th- I think it succeeds in that and making it such a visceral experience that it it stays with you that way. And I think that you know you can apply it to Saving Private Ryan and and D Day, you know, and that that opening sequence. It's like, well, you're never gonna forget, and it's it's depicted in a way that you're not used to in a in a standard movie and so on. And and so it is with Beasts of Southern uh, Beasts of Southern Wild. <laughs> And so it is with uh, Beasts of No Nation, where you just, you're immersed in a goose nightmare in a very effective way. I mean, I think that the movie's main goal is to put you in his shoes, basically, right? It's And, and this is where, now that we're not in Contreras Corner, I think that it's a plus, as frustrating as it can be at times, it's a plus that you don't really ever get a very clear exposition of what's going on in the world. Because he's a kid, he wouldn't know. And you're seeing it all from yeah. his point of view. So it makes sense that he hears adults talk, but he never really hears adults explain it, you know, break it down to where he and the audience would understand it. So, yeah, it makes perfect sense that in this movie, it's just it just looks like it's a bunch of different adult factions shooting at each other and you never can get make heads or tails of what really is happening, which is fine. I think that's, that's, that's a positive. Uh, the thing, though, is that and this is obviously a very personal take, a very personal requirement, I guess, as far as it goes for me, is that if you're going to put me through this much misery for two hours and 17 minutes, as effective as it is, 
I kind of feel like I need something else at the end. I need to walk out of it with a little more than just, wow, that sucked and I really felt it. You know, I, there's just like one final turn of the movie experience that, that should be there. Uh-huh. And I don't get that with, with this movie. And I've been trying to figure out like, what is it that that's missing? And it's not to diminish what it accomplishes, which like I said, it's just to give you that, that you know, descent into madness. You know, a goose descent into madness. That that's very well done. But uh, I don't know. I, I I don't want a happy ending. I, I I I and I I'm not saying that I need a happy ending. But I wish that there was something. Uh, I guess my problem is with the ending. And the in I kind of made light of it in Contreras Corner. But to me, the the last ten minutes of the movie are the weakest. And it's not because of the kid. Interesting. I think that Abraham. Uh, what's his last name? Uh, it's A T T A H Ata Ata. Okay. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I I think Abraham Ata he is fantastic, and he kills that final scene where it's just on him, and he's just delivering these lines, and you can tell that he is he is not entirely dehumanized, but there's definitely he's not a normal kid, and he's probably never going to be. In in what he's telling, just has such truth, you know. But but it still felt like. I guess if you had ended there, I would be fine. But the fact that then you have to give me that shot of the somewhat, somewhat kind of happy ending with the water and everything, it, it just feels like it, you know, we went through so much shit that I feel like you either make it a three hour long movie and the last hour of the movie is about this kid kind of getting to the point where you earn that final shot with the water. Uh... I don't like it, man. Or rather, it's not that I don't like it. It's just that it doesn't resonate with me the way that I think that it should resonate with me. Like, that final shot well, doesn't really carry any meaning. What, what carries meaning to exactly. me is that what well, the the interview that he has at the end. You know, that seems like it's either a setup for something much bleaker. You know, which is like he he's looking at the at the woman and he's like, "You're never you can't understand me." Cut to black, directed by Kerry <laughs> Fukunaga. I'm like, man, that was fucking bleak. Or, you know, it, it, you're setting up, like, a bigger journey for him that, you know, then I kind of feel like we need to see. If, you, if you're going to get me... I mean, what do you get out of that final shot, Alex? Or that final little bit with the with the beach and the water? Well, it's the whole thing. It can go either... That's my interpretation of it. It can go either way. It's the whole idea of, like, what he said was he just wants to be happy today. And to me, the ending... And this is, that, that's, like, a tried and true ending that... I think that works for me, too, Uh We've talked about numerous movies that have an ending like this of, well, we don't know, uh, like Lewin Davis, for example, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring or the next day. But for this moment right here, you know, I'm here and I'm going to do what I can to be happy. And that's him just like it to me. The ending doesn't signify that everything's going to be okay. It just signifies that right now, well, he's back in the water and we'll see where it goes. But it's significantly more hopeful than the rest of the movie. You know what I mean? Like, it's just. The, the disconnect. <laughs> I'd argue even still, it's not like it ended with like a McDonald's commercial. It's still a pretty Right, but that speaks just to how fucking bleak the rest of the movie is. You know what I mean? Like Even though the taken alone, that ending is not a happy ending, compared to everything that has happened before, it kind of is a happy ending. He gets to look at the ocean? Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, the things that happen in this movie... <laughs> are just nightmarish, you know? Oh, yeah. And so, I don't know. I think that maybe that's that's kind of my problem, that I 
I feel like if you're going to put me through, you know, two hours of that, then I need to feel that when it comes to the end, I need to get something more other than that was a really accurate, immersive depiction of misery. I want to come out with just like a little bit more because I don't really come out with any sort of bigger understanding of anybody in this movie. You know, I I think that Idris Elba is great, but fuck if I know what makes him tick. I mean, it's just, he's just a monster. Yeah, but I, you're ex- exactly explaining Passion of the Christ, like how you explain that movie, in that this movie just kind of drops you in, and here's the situation you follow, and I don't think you're supposed to understand it. Well, I wasn't saying that, that, that Passion of the Christ was a great movie. <laughs> I was just saying that it's oh. that kind of immersive experience <laughs> as well. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think you're supposed to understand much of anything in this movie. You're just supposed to understand this is what's going on. These are the players and this is the game, uh, so to speak. Well, you know, like going back to, I guess, our last episode uh, with Jade, right? I remember making the comment of... uh, I I, I cannot wait to see where this is going. (laughs) Uh, I want to see David Caruso playing the commandant. (laughs) Hands in his pockets. (laughs) Hands in his pockets with his beret <laughs> slightly askew. Uh, no, I, I remember saying that it would be kind of silly of me to expect any sort of statement about the world from a 90s thriller, you know, for a 90s sexual, sexual thriller <laughs> written by Joe Estertaz. Uh I don't think that it's a, that's asking too much from this movie. You know, it's like, I don't mind it. I guess I kind of do based on our, our episode. I don't mind it that Jade has absolutely nothing to say. But I, on the other hand, I do wish that Beasts of No Nation had more to say. Yeah. I mean, I can understand your frustration or your, not a frustration, but I can understand your thought in that way. I don't agree with it. I think it says what it wants to. Um, well, I, I think I agree with that. I, I, think, I think it you- says what it wants to as well. I just want more. I think if I, yeah, just knowing you, I think you want more resolution from a character perspective and not even necessarily resolution, but you want to know more about them. And, and I can see your point of you, you want, uh, uh, Fukunoka to completely commit to the, the misery tone and just take us home with <laughs> well, a very bleak ending. I think to put it another way, I want the movie to tell me something or, or to tell me something beyond Fukunaga, excuse me, I mispronounced his name. Uh, yeah, I want the movie and Fukunaga by extension to tell me something beyond beyond just showing me how horrible the situation is. Because that part, I mean, it does brilliantly. Mission accomplished. You know, it's like, I will not forget. And it will, it will have that effect where anytime that somebody mentions child soldiers, this is what my mind's going to go to. So on that end, it's like job well done but but i'm like but shouldn't we get more especially because it was such an emotional investment you know sitting through it twice <laughs> yeah um agu our man abraham really good really good and we've talked about the i guess endless cornucopia that is the discussion of child acting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and also the endless fucking Valhalla that is the discussion of child acting and that there's usually not a child actor performance that you say that was okay it's usually going to go one way or another and fortunately for this movie uh, Abraham Agu almost upsettingly so was so powerful in this god that it happens so fast 
But that whole, it's literally probably like a two minute sequence between them getting rounded up and his dad and his brother getting shot to him getting captured Mm by uh, the NDF. And it's, fuck, man. It's rough. And that whole sequence I talked about, like, is this a horror movie? It's presented like it. But like you said, it's almost the movie's kind of from his perspective. It's just this whirlwind of a day of him being stripped away from his mom and then his family getting killed and then getting taken captive and seeing all this crazy shit. Uh, his performance is great. There's some scenes in that, and we kind of made allusion to some of it in the earlier portion, the part where he finds he thinks he finds his mom, that whole sequence, especially because if I remember correctly, it's presented as one continuous mm-hmm. shot or maybe even two, but God, it's it's heartbreaking when he, as I mentioned earlier, when he loses Stryka. So for a movie that, like I said, it's not an easy watch and it's not something that I'm going to recommend to people. I'm not going to say, oh, you should definitely watch this. But if someone like, you know, uh, one of our listeners struck up a conversation with us, or if I talked to someone and they had seen it, he's definitely uh, one of the things I would talk about is one of, if not the thing that works the most, because we'll get to eat yourself in just a moment here. But I feel for how the movie does succeed, it's, I mean, by definition and by theory, it hinges upon Agu's performance. Mm-hmm. But in in practice, this movie would not have succeeded nearly to the extent it did if uh, Abraham didn't knock it out of the park like he did. Yeah, it, it raises the just the moral concerns of like, you know, basically, I really hope that this kid is older than he looks because yes, it's that's. I don't un- I don't see how you could. The context of that shit is so much to ask. It looks mm-hmm. like he was. 13 or 14 when they made this movie okay that's that's a little better it, it just you know he looks he, he's he's tiny he looks really innocent and just the idea of thinking you can't fake it out you know how like uh i'm sure you've heard when kubrick was doing the shining you know the kid in the shining he had no idea what they were doing all his shots are yeah. kind of out of context so so he could just say his lines and not really realize how fucked up everything was you can't do that with this movie not the way it's shot i can't imagine how they would do it so yeah, for his <laughs> for his sake, I hope that the, that he's older than, and I hope that everybody was really nice to him when they were not shooting. Yeah, one of the things I read was that something about Idris Elba played soccer with the kids, like in between takes and stuff, to kind of keep their mind off of the things at hand. <laughs> the blood tasted like strawberry. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I mean those kind of roles take tolls on grown men. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about the performances that drove people insane or like the dedication and getting into the mind of a character and you know i'm not saying that abraham tried to do that but even at 13 or 14 some of that shit in this movie is that's a very very dark place to ask for someone to ask you to go and like simulate that it's happening Mm -hmm. so yeah Uh, no no record of him not being well adjusted or anything like that it's just like you said to say for his sake i hope it was Something that people around him made like made sure along the way that he was okay with, and he was cognizant of like the ramifications of what they were portraying and things like that. So, uh, moving on to Charles Minor Idris Elba, uh, kind of a bummer because I'm never gonna be able to see him again without thinking of the Commandant. Um, <laughs> ruined. He's not ruined, but man, the fucking range of this guy. He is like man. If he could sing and dance, he'd be unstoppable. Oh, you haven't seen Cats. Oh, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he can. Maybe they're going to make, you know, he'll be in Tarantino's next joint. He'll just be dancing up a storm to some Chuck Berry. But um, 
it's like Monique and Precious or uh, Ed Norton in American History X. It's like, yeah, they're fucking awesome, but their characters are reprehensible. Um, it's hard to be celebratory of such portrayals of, you know, just almost inherent evil. And the saving grace of the Commandant here is just, he's obviously a despicable human being, but he's also just kind of an idiot. And the movie shows that he was just a pawn (laughs) in like this political movement. So that is almost kind of like a reassuring or um, rewarding is the word I was looking for portion uh, aspect to the film. Um, But God damn, dude, like we talked about this guy, the things he's done and it's one of those things of literally like uh, if my, my dad would never watch this movie, but if he did, um, I've told you before, like my dad watched warrior and refused to believe that Tom Hardy was an Englishman. <laughs> he thought he was just some like Atlantic city trash that they found. <laughs> I know people like my dad would watch this and they would think that this guy and the guy who played Charles minor in the office were two different people <laughs> because just the way they look and the way they talk and, I mean, De Niro is like that too. The the, the uh, Raging Bull and the roles that he's taken on. It's it's a mark of a very high level of talent. And in this movie too, for someone like Idris Elba, that is so remarkably likable in every general sense. Every interview, like when he did Hot Ones, I was like, God, this guy is so cool. <laughs> and when he's like on red carpets, and he just seems like such a cool dude. He's he his like um, he is the mark of uh, back in the day, it was always said about the great baby face champions in wrestling were the guys that uh, the women wanted to sleep with and the men wanted to have a beer with. And Idris Elba is like a modern living example of that philosophy. And then you watch something like this and you're like, fuck him. Like, I hope he, I hope he never gets work again, but it's because he's so good in this role. I, I mean, you know how out of touch I've been with film since 2014 so i'll look this up while i shoot it over to you about who got nominated for best supporting actor Mm. in 2016 but julio idris elba what a talent yeah i and i haven't seen cats i think we can shut up (laughs) (laughs) dude i think he can sing and dance from what i remember i mean there there are more memorable things in that movie than idris elba because everything is just fucking bonkers there but but quit trying to make cats happen uh yeah no he's great he's he's great i mean i mentioned it a little bit ago i obviously the movie's not interested in giving me a more three-dimensional portrait of the commandant right uh uh-huh. but but he does wonders with what he's given not just because yes he is he's not good guy idris elba i want to have a beer idris elba but he does have that sort of he retains some of the charisma. It's just evil charisma in this. He's still captivating, right? There is you buy that all these, all these children, all these youths like would follow him. He's still kind of you know he has like sort of a magnetism uh, to him. So like a David Koresh type he, thing. I thought you were gonna say David Caruso. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I I would follow a, a movement. From this Idris Elba before I would follow a David Caruso and Jade movement. <laughs> but yeah, no, he, he's he's fantastic. I was thinking about the whole award season. I, I'm really curious to see what you come up with because this was, I, knew, I never really got a chance to push it much in, uh, during Contreras Corner, but one of my notes was about how this was just Netflix basically coming onto the poker table and just pushing their chips and like, we're all in. 
right? It, it just <laughs> just whip their dick out and laid it down on the table. Let's talk business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, it was kind of like their their first attempt at doing something that was kind of uh, award baity, even though at the same time it's just so. Uh, like I want to say, I understand why the movie itself would be too much for the Academy, right? They're like, this is just this crosses too many lines, but the performance, I, I would think that Idris Elba's performance was kind of an easy one it, it, for them to reward, right? It's just like nice guy, nice actor playing a villain, playing a monster. That's that seems to be something that they can wrap their minds <laughs> around pretty easily uh, so i'm surprised uh-huh. that he he didn't get more accolades at least not when it came time for the oscars so i know i, I harped on it in both uh, portions of the podcast and it's because it stuck out to me so dramatically and when i watched the movie i was like there is no way he can have that pronounced of a bald spot on the <laughs> middle of his fucking forehead and i in my research he he stopped working out and he started shaving like that routinely so that his hair would grow back kind of weird because he said like the commandant should be kind of a fucking bum and not well-kempt and have like he, he thought he would have like this weird hairline and and of course Idris Elba's not working out looks like me at a physical state that I could not <laughs> imagine to achieve <laughs> I honestly am curious if this being the Netflix the first Netflix movie prohibited it from getting any love from the academy do you think that's a possibility at all but it did get a theatrical run oh okay so you're saying not not officially but not like technically disqualified it but kind of just like a we're gonna make a statement here oh yeah actually now that you say it yes especially considering how everybody got their panties in a bunch uh a few years later when roma was getting nominations yes uh, yeah actually that's probably more than anything i, I would say that's it but it's still great i mean if nothing else it makes the academy look even worse because it's like it's right in front of your face and, <laughs> you and like watch yeah. the movie and it's not even like history has made fools of them it's five years later and <laughs> they're basically now at the mercy of these streaming services ah oh, what a time uh so the 88th academy awards february 28th of 2016 was that no that wasn't this was the year, Julio, that a perfectly fine movie named Mad Max Fury Road lit the world on fire <laughs> and for some reason was nominated for Best Picture, amongst other things, in the category of Best Supporting Actor, where uh, exactly like we said in hindsight, I would hold Idris Elba in that regard. We had Mark Rylance, who won for Bridge of Spies, mm-hmm. uh, Christian Bale for The Big Short, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Hardy for The Revenant. Mark mm-hmm. Ruffalo for Spotlight, and then we got old Sly for Creed, which I've still never seen Creed. Yeah, I haven't seen Creed either. It's the only nominee that I haven't seen. And of course, so that that makes me want to replace him with Idris Elba. But uh, yes, in all, in all fairness, assuming that, that Sly is as good as all the others, mm, Ruffalo is probably the one that I would drop. And I, I, I really like Spotlight. I, I You've seen it, right? Yes. Yeah, Ruffalo is really good in in it, but uh, I mean, it's not like a tour de force performance like what we see from Idris Elba here. Interesting. And then director, we had Inurito, Adam McKay, George Miller, Lenny Abramson, and Tom McCarthy. I mean, that was a pretty decided year well in advance, but 
Unfortunately, Beast of No Nation, they had that big red Netflix logo at the top of the poster. So all the old white folk at the Academy turned their head up directly up like the, the fucking flood was coming and kept their nose <laughs> noses firmly in the air. Anytime that Beast of No Nation came up, they were like, oh, is that the movie that you can watch on your phone? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I prefer cinema. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, and buddy. even though, even though I am one of those people that talked about the sanctity and the specialness and the whole idea of movies as we know them has greatly changed in my lifetime, something like that is still silly. It, it the fact that this movie wasn't released in movie theaters across the globe, but instead was on streaming services. That doesn't change how good the movie is or how good the yep. parts of it are. It's a bigger issue with my issue is more with the over the, the, the overlapping sense of it all. It, the the domineering idea of what's going on. So, yeah, very silly. Uh, uh, and like we said already in hindsight, a silly uh, bridge to burn or a silly hill to die on, I should say. Yeah, I, I honestly I had I think it's the first time. Uh, since you know 2020 happened that i've thought of this that i thought of the 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 hubris to just to talk about posturing you know from the big theater chains yeah like just that that cockiness of being like you know we own the world and nothing will ever flip the tables <laughs> it's one of those things of like calling your ex-girlfriend hey remember when i called you a bitch and said i never want to see you again <laughs> yeah i'm sorry about that I didn't really I'm mean single. it. Can you, can you bring my laptop back over? <laughs> All right, Julio. Uh, before we close this out, hit me with uh, one or two movies similar to this that are very well-made movies that you have no interest in ever watching again just because mm. of how brutal they are. <laughs> I, I mean, I already mentioned The Passion of the Christ, which is, uh, I mean, this is, more involving than the Passion of the Christ. I, I I've never watched the Passion of the Christ again, and I don't have the desire to ever watch it again. But I think it remains in my memory as kind of that kind of experience. Where it was like, I'm not even sure that I could say I was glad I watched it, but I don't regret watching it. You know, it's like, well, now that's there, and I can always reference it, <laughs> as proven by all the times that I bring it up in this podcast, <laughs> uh, yeah. like, as this marker of an experience uh, that I don't know that I would be able to, you know, if I hadn't watched the movie. So that that could be one. I'm trying to think of like other stuff that I'm just like, nope. That was about twelve years a slave. That one came to mind for me. I would watch it again. I'm not jumping at the opportunity. It's not like something that excites me. But if somebody said like, hey, we're gonna go watch it, I would join. How about irreversible? <laughs> Never seen it and I don't think I ever want to. So that's a that's a good call. Um Fitting this category that I'm talking about, there was a movie that uh, our friend Brandon Curtis had turned me on to called Tyrannosaur, a very powerful movie that I never want to watch again in my life. Uh, I think American History X falls in that category, too. can only watch Edward Furlong die once. <laughs> uh, man, that's, that's why Dark Fate really fucked you up early on. <laughs> No shit. Uh, leaving Las Vegas. Uh, God, I leaving but, Las Vegas. It's a yeah, that definitely. It's like it, you immediately like feel like you're contradicting yourself because you're like, God, it's so good. But then you remember like everything about it. And you're like, 
God, I never want to see that movie again in my life. Well, it just, I, I think that there comes a point where the movie will cross a line and you're like, ah, that's it. I, I don't need to ever experience this again. I understand why it's there. In this case, Living Las Vegas, I I remember the moment that uh, I'm like, God, I I understand why the movie went there, but I, I'm good never watching this again. I would agree with that. And I think I've finally, for years and years and probably well into this podcast, I always referred to uh, Requiem for a Dream is a movie that I could never watch more than once a year. I think I'm at the point where I'm content with never seeing that movie again. It's really good, but you know, you want to talk about a beating of a film. Yeah, I I think I'm still at the point where I'm I'm happy to watch it with somebody who hasn't seen it, you know, just to show them because uh, it's it's really good. Yeah, but yeah, it's but it's also- not uh, it's not under the Silver Lake. I'm not just going to sprinkle it on here and there. But that's. You know, I, I can say that our time here with Beasts of No Nation, I can add that into that category. Sad to say, I'm not. It's not going to be a, a Blu-ray I buy and add to the collection, and it's not. Uh, it's not going to go into a, a rotation of any sort. But it was. A, it was a good watch. It was an interesting film to have experienced. So, Dan, we thank you for not only being a Patreon uh, pledger, but we thank you for bringing this movie into Contrarian's canon. I can't say it's going to be referenced as much as some of our other movies. I don't know if we're going to have an award named after this movie, but <laughs> it was uh, it was a hoot. Julio, I said I was going to abstain from giving this baby a letter grade. Uh, are you wanting to uh, give your star rating out? Is it changed at all from your Letterboxd review? It has changed. I watched this movie... According to Letterboxd, I watched it on May 21st, 2019. So not even two years ago. Uh, and I gave it two and a half stars. And uh, like I said, I reading over my review, it is two paragraphs that sum up what I just spent most of a real talk saying. <laughs> um, so nothing has changed except for, I guess, my appreciation for the things that work has increased and my tolerance for the things that don't work has increased. So it's going from two and a half stars in May 21st, 2019 to three and a half stars on, as we record, January 27th, 2021. That's it. Full star rating. Nice. Full star, which almost makes the argument that you should rewatch movies that you don't think you should, you would ever watch again. <laughs> but... This could be the exception to the We've rule. just defeated our own argument. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, three and a half, which uh, hopefully makes Dan happy, because I know he, he wasn't pleased with my, my, my first impression on Beasts of No Nation. And now it's a little more positive. So closing with that, Contrarians listeners, hit us up on Twitter. Tell us what is a great movie that you watched, a great film, in your opinion, that you have absolutely no interest or intention of ever watching again. Be interested to read those. Or send us an email. We are the contrarians at gmail.com if you have any that you want us to discuss. So Julio, Beast of No Nation is in Contrarians Canon. What comes next? Coming up next, February. We needed a fresh movie to counterbalance our next rotten movie, which is gonna be indecent proposal. So oh, God. <laughs> Yes. How do you how do you program against that? And uh, you gave us the answer, Alex. You volunteer Robocop. I'm all for it for two reasons. One, I haven't seen it in a long time, uh, so I'm eager to rewatch it. And two, it's directed by Paul Verhoeven, who is also the director of Showgirls, which we will be doing in March. 
So it's all Perfect. interconnected. Yeah, RoboCop's great. That'll be a fun movie to talk about. Sadly, I don't have the Criterion release of it, but we'll figure it out one way or the other. I was about to ask you, hey, how did you watch Beasts of No Nation? I was like, it's Netflix. That's the only way you watch it. <laughs> uh, perfect. So that is what is on deck. Uh, moving into plugs. We have our perennial plugs here of the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They open us up with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Uh, our logo and pretty much every graphic you see on our webpage, on our Patreon page, on our upcoming merch store, uh, that's all from the mind and genius of Hans Rothwieser, fellow podcaster who's also a novelist, who's also an artist. He does so many things. You can check out his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. If you want to reach him on Twitter, he's at Mildemonios. If you want to email him, he is at mildemonios at hotmail.com. You can check out his podcasts, uh, Nación Combi, Contante y Sonante, Marginal. Uh, They're all uh, in Spanish. So brush up on your Spanish before you listen to them. Uh, And he also has Living in Peru, which is on iBox, and that's in English. Uh, He has this uh, new book coming up called Project Cthulhu, or Proyecto Cthulhu. It's a collection of short stories. Uh, He has one in them, and that one's actually uh, going to be translated into English. So all of you who have been waiting for uh, Hans's writing talent to be translated, well, your, your chance is coming. Uh, so thank you, Hans, for everything you do. And thanks must also be given to Ms. Zoe Perez, who curates our Instagram and Facebook accounts. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Contrarian Prime. We post some audio drops from our podcast. Zoe also will post uh, little interactive surveys and things like that, um, asking you if David Caruso's sexy or not, which, I mean, we all know the answer to that, but sometimes they'll be a little bit more divisive. So, Zoe, we appreciate the work you do for us greatly. Uh, Continue to keep up the good work, girl. Much thanks. All right. Off the backs of Beasts of No Nation, I mean, we only make the next logical step, which is to RoboCop. (laughs) So we will (laughs) We look forward to seeing y'all in the future. For now, that's going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time.